Oh, good afternoon. Thanks for staying around. We're going to have to lock the back door after lunch. And, but I'm glad you're here. Glad you stayed. Uh, we're delighted to have Micah Smith back with us to preach this afternoon. He brought his wife, Kelsey, and their daughter. I've accused Micah of having this imaginary family. I've never met them. I have, uh, you know, he tells me about this wife and daughter, and uh, I got to meet them today. So it's a delight to meet them. And then Micah's parents are here as well. Glad you're here, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So anyway, let's give ourselves to the worship of our God. Take the hymns of grace, the bigger hymn book, hymns of grace, number 94. Praise him, praise him, Jesus, our blessed redeemer. 94. Let's stand together as we sing.
Brother Tim, would you lead us in prayer, asking God to meet with us? Father, may we enter into this worship with hearts that are open to your word. Hmm. And we pray that your word would be seasoned by your spirit, and that the spirit Amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we're in Proverbs chapter 28 today. We're going to get a week off from being warned about being sluggards, so uh, you can <laughs> rejoice in that. So, uh, verse 1 reminds me of King Saul, the wicked flee when there is no one pursuing, but the righteous are secure as a lion. Saul was sure that David was going to kill him and do him harm. And he, even though he was the pursuer, yet in his heart he was the one uh, fleeing for his life. Verse 2, By the transgression of a land, many are its princes. But by a man who understands, who knows, so it endures. Proverbs tell us the reason we have big government, don't, doesn't it? Because of our transgressions, isn't it? The uh, um, exiled Jews said, Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its goodness, behold, we are slaves in it. So uh, they were feeling uh, the pain of being taken uh, captive. Verse 3, a poor man who oppresses the lowly is a driving rain which leaves no food. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive with them. This is what's really happening in what popular media calls culture wars. It's the righteous contending uh, with the wicked. Five, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek Yahweh understand all things. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, double-dealing, though he be rich. He who observes the law is a son who understands, but he who befriends gluttons humiliates his father. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the lowly. I was racking my brain trying to think of a Bible example of someone who is like this, who gets gain in an unjust way. Uh, Ahab comes up as far as how he got, uh, uh, can't think of the guy's name, Naboth, Naboth, how he stole his vineyard, but... uh, 
when Pastor Walden was reading Micah 3 uh, this morning, referring to that, and it says, The heads of Jacob, you rulers of house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, and who eat the flesh of my people and strip their skin from them. So here in Proverbs, he is uh, rebuking uh, leaders. And, of course, we know uh, these Proverbs were designed for uh, kings, for rulers. Verse 9, he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. We need to remember that when we go to God. Is he listening or why isn't he listening? Verse 10, he who leads the upright astray in an evil way will himself fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. The rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the lowly who understands searches him. When the righteous exult, there is great honor, but when the wicked rise, man has to be sought out. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will receive compassion. How blessed is the man who is always in dread. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? But he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Like a roaring lion and a rushing bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. A leader who lacks discernment abounds in oppressions, but he who hates greedy gain will prolong his days. A man oppressed with the blood guilt of life will flee until death. Let no one uphold him. He who walks blamelessly will be saved, but he who is crooked, double-dealing, will fall all at once. He who cultivates his ground will be satisfied with food, but he who pursues empty things will be satisfied with poverty. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. Abraham and his nephew Lot came to mind there. Abraham, the man who abounded with blessings, Lot took the uh, easy path, followed the world, and did not go unpunished. 21, to show partiality is not good. Even for a piece of bread, a man will transgress. A man with an evil eye hurries after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. Get-rich-quick schemes do not work. A man with an evil eye hurries... Oh, excuse me. 23, he who reproves a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. Remember that if you would be a true friend. He who robs his father or his mother and says, it is not a transgression, is the companion of a man who destroys. An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in Yahweh will be enriched. Mark it down, where there's strife, there's pride. 26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will escape. He who gives to the poor will never want, 
but he who shuts his eyes shall have many curses. When the wicked rise, men hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. Now before Micah comes to open the word of God, take the hymns of grace hymn book, turning to 388, 388, he holds me fast, 388. Let's stand together as we sing.
Good afternoon. Good to be here with you this afternoon, worshiping the Lord. Uh, the text for this afternoon is going to be from Hebrews chapter 1. My uh, dad, who's here this afternoon, preached this morning at Maple Avenue Bible Church across town. And uh, he preached a message about the incarnation of Christ, or Christmas message, or an Advent message. And it wasn't from a, a passage of Scripture that you would usually associate with being a Christmas passage. And uh, I want to do the same thing this afternoon, actually, from Hebrews chapter 1, because it's about the coming of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, and uh, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you as your people, people bought with the blood of your Son, people born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and a people indwelt by your spirit, united to Christ. We ask that you would bless us this afternoon. We ask that your spirit would illumine our eyes, open our hearts to your word, and help us to see wonderful things out of your law. Pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So I want you to imagine for a moment, before we dig into our text, that you're a shepherd in the pasture in first century Israel. And you're tending your flock by night, like the passage from Luke chapter 2. It's been roughly 400 years since the last words of the prophet Malachi. So the Old Testament scriptures have closed, and there's been no public prophetic ministry, and no consistent speaking of the Lord to the people of God for hundreds of years. You've never heard the voice of the Lord. You've never seen a miracle. You've never witnessed anything even remotely close to the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha that you've read about in the Hebrew Scriptures. You've read of the Lord taking Elijah up in a whirlwind, but you never saw it. You read of Elisha raising the dead, but you've never seen the dead raised. For hundreds of years, it is as if the mouth of God fell utterly silent over his people. And then one night, as you're performing the most mundane task, the most second nature task of your occupation, perhaps you're drowsy from a lack of sleep. All of a sudden you're ajarred from your stupor because the heavens have been opened and there's an angel of the Lord appearing to you. And the sky above you is ablaze with the glory of 10,000 times 10,000 heavenly beings. And an angel of the Lord is announcing the birth of the promised Messiah to you. 
when we read this announcement in Luke chapter 2 that took place exactly like that, we tend to sanitize it and turn it into something sentimental, something cute and harmless. We even have children's plays where a little boy or a little girl will dress up in white robes and a plastic halo over their head. But I think that if we were there that night, we would get an entirely different picture of that scene. It wouldn't be a white bedsheet that a kid is wearing. And we wouldn't be looking at the scene thinking, oh, this is so cute. If we were there that night, we would understand that this was a display of the glory of the God of Israel that made these shepherds fear for their lives. That's what they felt when they saw that. They felt utter terror. These angels were messengers sent to a beleaguered and oppressed people announcing to them that the wait is over, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God to rule on David's throne has come. But the reason that I begin with this illustration from the Gospel of Luke is because the shepherds feared the glory of the angels. That terror encapsulates both the magnitude of the announcement that they were making, that God's king had come, as well as the breaking in of God's kingdom, bringing God's presence to the people who had experienced nothing but silence from him for 400 years. The text in Hebrews that we have before us teaches both of these realities. First, just as Israel went through hundreds of years of silence from heaven, what our text from Hebrews shows us today is that God is not silent toward his people. And the second thing that it teaches is that Yahweh's king that was promised from the from literally from after the garden in Genesis 3:15 a seed of the serpent will crush or the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent Yahweh's king has come Hebrews 1 contains a long chain of texts proving that the one whom the angels announced the birth of is worthy of more glory than angels themselves are that the shepherds feared so as glorious and as frightening as the sky filled with the glory of these heavenly beings was, the awe-inspiring mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God is that that baby laying in the manger that we celebrate every Christmas was worthy of more glory than those shepherds saw that night. These verses from the first chapter of Hebrews contain some of the most profound statements in all of Scripture about the identity of of God the Son, whom the angels announced. It's my hope that even as those shepherds that night were mystified and in awe of the glory of God, we would be so as well as we stare into the radiant glory of God's Son, whom the preacher of this text sets before us. So the first thing that I want, to see, I want us to see from this text is in verses 1 through 3. It's the incarnation of God's Son, which is God's final word. This is God's final word to his people. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke, so past tense, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power so the book of hebrews even though we don't know who wrote it 
And we don't know this for sure, but it seems like it was most likely a sermon that was preached. It doesn't start off like a letter or like one of Paul's letters with a, with a greeting. Um, it starts off with a story. And whoever is preaching this message must be a brilliant orator because he knows how to grab his audience's attention and pull them in right at the start. He begins, like it's a story, long ago. And he appeals to a shared heritage between he and his hearers. His hearers were Jews. This is the letter to the Hebrews, a Hebrew church. They had the Old Testament scriptures. Perhaps they had even memorized large portions of the Old Testament scriptures growing up in synagogue. So as this preacher is making his argument, he's going to appeal to sort of a multi-layered web of Old Testament citations, allusions, and theological truths from the Hebrew Scriptures. And we see this in in verses 514. Verses 514 of this same chapter that we're in, we're not covering it today, but it's a long chain of texts proving that Jesus is worthy of more glory than any created being, including the heavenly angels. So the, the aim of the preacher, or the author, is simple. His aim is to magnify the supremacy and the sufficiency of what God has accomplished in Christ and to dissuade people from going back to the shadow that they had before. And the first way that the preacher does this is by showing that Jesus is the consummation of the revelation that their fathers had received in the prophets. Remember, the incarnation of Christ, that announcement made to those shepherds, came at the back end of hundreds of years of silence from the close of the prophet Malachi. I want you to see that there are three comparisons here in this text from the revelation before the coming of Christ and the revelation that we have in Christ now. First, long ago, at many times, and in many ways. So God spoke long ago first, at many times, and in many ways. But in these last days... He has spoken to us in his son. So you see there's a comparison between the time before when there was all these different ways that God was speaking. So dreams, visions, uh, audible voices from the Lord, angels being sent to people. But in these last days, he has spoken with finality in his son. The second comparison is he spoke then to our fathers and now to us. He spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us in his son. And then the last one is the mode that he spoke by. Before he spoke in the prophets, and in these last days he has spoken to us in his son. But how does that relate to Christmas? Well, it relates to Christmas because the incarnation is the centerpiece that this whole picture turns on. The incarnation of God the Son is the consummate Uh, the consummation of God's self-disclosure to his people. This is one of the reasons that we don't believe in continuing revelation. We believe that the canon of scripture is closed. Special revelation has come to an end. All of the various ways that God used to speak to his people, so visions, dreams, audible voices, appearances of angels, etc., All those have come to an end because all of these things have been brought to their climactic fulfillment and the revelation of God has been completed in the person of Christ. 
Sometimes I hear people say like, oh, what I would give to live in the days when the prophets were speaking. What I would give to live in the days of Elijah or Elisha and see these miracles. Wouldn't it be awesome to see some of that stuff? Wouldn't it be astounding to see Elisha raise the dead? Or to see Elijah taken up in a whirlwind and not die? Let alone the, the, the ministries of the, of the prophets that we actually have recorded in Scripture, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. It would be amazing to hear the Word of God spoken to us in our culture at our time, wouldn't it? That's how so many people think. But in reality, I can't think of a more misguided sentiment than that. Because all of these ways that God was speaking at these various times and in these various ways through the prophets were subservient to what we have now in Christ. To go back to them would be to go back to something that is less than what we have now. What we have now is the fullness of God's revelation and we have it shining in the face of Jesus himself who is his own son. All that God has to say to you, even now in your life, he has said to you in his son. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. That is what the author of Hebrews is saying. But the incarnation doesn't just bring the revelation of God to its climactic fulfillment. The incarnation also inaugurates what is referred to in Scripture as the last days. Look at, look at this, these words in verse 1. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets in the former days. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. What do these last days mean? Entire ministries have been devoted to identifying last day's events and trying to pinpoint where we are at on a calendar of end times events before the return of Christ. But throughout the Old Testament, there are, throughout the Old Testament, there are clear prophecies of expectation about things that God will do in the last days. However, we don't need to make charts or read in our newspapers to figure out whether we are living in the last days. According to our text, one singular event has ushered in the last days. And that's the incarnation of God the Son. That is what has, has ushered in the last days. The incarnation of Christ is what splits time into the former days and the last days. It's the dividing line. Think of prophecies like Isaiah, 2, uh, Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And the prophet sees all the nations of God streaming up to the mountain of the Lord. Well, he use, specifically uses the words latter days in that passage. That's what the author to the Hebrews says has already come in a certain sense in Christ. Uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. He's talking about the completeness of Christ's suffering. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. So, or in other words, in the last days, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So 
what inaugurates the last days is the incarnation of God the Son and everything that he accomplished on our behalf. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 20 also says something similar, but we won't turn there right now. So, Christ himself coming in the flesh as the baby laying in the manger, then all that he would accomplish in his life and death and resurrection and ascension on our behalf is the consummate fulfillment of all of God's revelation. He's the final word from the Lord, and he brings with him the climax of human history. The incarnation is not just one of the things that happens in the biblical storyline. Sometimes we tell this story of the incarnation of Jesus as if it's just one of the things that happens in the biblical storyline. No. The, the, the incarnation of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, is what this whole story was moving towards. That is the fulfillment of the promises of God. The incarnation of Christ and the glory of what he accomplished in his humiliation and exaltation is the centerpiece of biblical revelation and the centerpiece of the history of the world. I, my family, I grew up in a family that loves Christmas movies. And if you know anything about Christmas movies, you know that one of the most popular series of Christmas movies is the Home Alone series. Have any of you ever seen the Home Alone movies? Well, the first Home Alone was great. And the second Home Alone somehow was even better. Home Alone set two, Lost in New York, was even better than the first one. But then the writers of the series made a mistake. They kept going with it. They made three. And then they even made four, but I don't even think it ever made it to theaters. There's, there's something about a story that has no ending and no resolution and just keeps repeating itself over and over again that people don't like. The story of God's revelation to humanity is not that kind of story. The incarnation of Christ, that baby laying in the manger who is both eternal, mighty God and man, is the climax of God's story. He is the one who brings it all to a close. History revolves around him, around the God-man. And look with me at verse 3. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the world by the word of his power. This is the reason that Jesus is worthy of being this full and final revelation of God too. Because he's not just another prophet. The reason that he can be this full and final revelation is because he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. Everything that God said to the prophets was for the purpose of revealing not just things that would happen, but himself to his people. And now he's given himself to us in the incarnation of Christ. If he were just some prophet who was the last one and then the end of special revelation came, that would be bad news. We would be left in abject darkness. But God hasn't just stopped speaking to you altogether. God is not silent to you this morning. The truth is, he speaks to you infinitely, maximally, and eternally in his own Son, who is the radiance of his glory. 
The purpose of all of God's speaking in the past was not only to instruct, but to reveal himself to his people. So the author is saying that in these last days, he has not just spoken, but he has given the one who is eternally the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. When the father looked at the son in eternity past, you know what he saw? He saw his own glory shining in the face of his son. Because he is the radiance of his glory. They share the same divine nature. And that is what has been given to us in flesh in Christ. And this is actually why Jesus is called the Son or the Word or the Wisdom or the Radiance or the Light from God. All of these things have a manifesting quality, don't they? Think about John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on in verse 14 to say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why does He call Him the Word? And why does He call Him, or and why is He called the Son? Or why is He called the radiance of God's glory? It's because words communicate something about yourself to people. So the fact that Jesus is called the Word means that He is this communication of the Father to us. And He is that eternally. The same thing with sons. Sons bear something of the image of their Father. But He is the one who bears the image of His Father perfectly and eternally. Same thing with the radiance of His glory. As you look at the Son, you are seeing the divine nature of the Father come in the flesh. So, because this is who Jesus is, that baby laying in the manger, because that's who he is, there's nothing more that he could possibly say to you. He's already given you himself. Come in the flesh. And the second thing that I want us to see from this passage, the incarnation of God the Son, the coming of Christ, is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. Look at verses 2 and 3 again, but specifically the last parts of these verses. The last part of verse 2. Excuse me, it's the middle part of verse 2. In these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And here's the part. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So not only is Jesus God's full and final uh, revelation of himself, but this text also shows us that the coming of God the Son in the flesh, along with all that he accomplished, is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Covenant. Starting with Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And there are several different ways that the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. One way is by overt citation. And another way is by allusion. And if we don't know our Bibles, often we can miss clear allusions to the Old Testament that bring richness to our study of the New. And this is the case with a couple of statements from these verses. Look at, look at that uh, second part of verse 2 again. Whom he appointed heir of all things. What does he mean by the heir of all things there? Is this something new? 
Is this something that was unexpected? Or is he linking into something that had been promised a long time ago? Turn to Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2 talks about the nations raging in rebellion to the Lord. This is a, uh, this is a coronation psalm. It's, da- it's a song about the first David's ascent to the throne that looks forward and anticipates the coming of the Messiah. But look what the result of the Davidic king receiving all authority from God is. I will tell of the decree in verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and what? I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So in other words, he's going to inherit the nations. This Davidic king, when he ascends God's throne, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he perish, lest he perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The same thing, uh, the same thing is said in Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is not, this time not about David, but it's about Solomon. And it's pointing forward to a greater king that would come and would be the true and greater Solomon. Psalm 72 starts out by saying, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. And then these verses are the ones that I want us to key in on from this psalm. May they fear you while the sun endures, talking about all the nations. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound until the moon be no more. And may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and may his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and may all nations serve him. That is looking forward and anticipating what is said about Christ in our, song, in our text here in Hebrews. He is the heir of all things. He is the one to whom all nations bow down. But isn't, it isn't just the nations that he inherits by coming and taking on our flesh. Literally, the Greek text in this says he is, liter- he is the heir of all. That's all it says. It's literally the heir of everything that God has created. It belongs to Christ because he's taken on our flesh and purchased our redemption and he's the one who is worthy of it. But then in verse 3, we see, it, we see another text that harkens back to Old Testament promises. Look at the last part of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does this remind you of? Does anyone have a, a text in mind that this brings, to, brings into their brain? One sitting down at God's right hand at the throne of majesty? Turn with me to Psalm 110. 
Psalm 110 is actually the most quoted psalm in the entirety of the New Testament because of all, its, of all of its expectation of the Messiah to come. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So sit at my right hand. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's going to be a main theme in the book of Hebrews too. The priesthood of Christ. So you can see how the author is weaving together these Old Testament texts showing that they were all expecting the one who has come in the flesh and consummated God's revelation to us. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Look at the second verse of Psalm 110. Or no, the first verse, the last part of it. Psalm 110, 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Where else do you see in Scripture God's enemies underneath the feet of God's chosen one? From Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I actually read an academic article that was, that was drawing that connection. It seems What it seems like the psalmist is saying is hearkening back to that first promise after Adam and Eve had inherited death and the curse and been expelled from the garden. He's saying just as there was a, a seed of the woman promised to crush the head of the serpent or be under his feet, even so, that promise is being fulfilled in the line of David by God making, making the Messiah's enemies his footstool. Turn me back to the book of Hebrews. So, the incarnation is not only the full revelation of himself to us, but it is also God himself fulfilling his promises to both Adam and Eve and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and David. All of the promises of God from the Old Testament are flowing toward God himself coming in the flesh. It's a fulfillment of all that God has promised. The incarnation is God himself taking on flesh and becoming our federal head, a better head than Adam, and our better Davidic king who conquers all of our enemies and inherits all things on behalf of his people because of his obedience in our place. In the, in the Old Covenant, though, the Davidic king played the role of representing people to God So he represented the people to God, and he also represented God to the people. The king's obedience or disobedience would mean blessing or cursing from God for his people. And on the other side of that equation, God's reign and sovereign authority over his people was crystallized in this single monarch, whom all power and all authority was invested in under God. And an an interesting element of this kingship in Israel is that the Davidic king, or the one in covenant with God on behalf of Israel from David's line, is said in 2 Samuel 7 to be an adopted son. He says, 
I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And actually that's quoted in the second, in the later on in Hebrews chapter 1. So the Davidic king is meant to image God as sons do. He's meant to image God to the people. But repeatedly in the history of Israel, we see that not happening, right? If you know anything, if you, if you read your Bible, you know anything about the history of the kings of Israel, you know that the la- almost the last thing most of them did was image the rule and the character of God over his people. David slept with Uriah's wife and murdered him. Solomon loved many foreign women and built idols on the mountain opposite of the temple. And from that point forward, it was generally a downward spiral of kings becoming worse and worse. The history of Israel's kings is a history of failure, rebellion, and idolatry, instead of imaging God as an adopted son to his people. And it didn't start with them, though. It started with Adam in the garden. But this is exactly what this text says that the incarnation of Christ has accomplished. He is the one who by his obedience would do what Adam failed to do and fix what Adam broke. He's the serpent crushing seed of the woman. He's the king from David's line who is worthy to inherit all created things as a reward for his obedience. Whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And the only reason that he could be this one is because of who he is from eternity. Look again at verse 3. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I love Christmas music. I would play Christmas music from starting in July if my wife would let me. She won't. She won't let me. She doesn't feel the same way about it that I do. But... I'm always amazed when I look up the lyrics to Christmas hymns or Christmas carols because if you type in some of the most popular Christmas carols into your search engine, you'll find verses of those hymns that you never even knew existed. In fact, some of them will be ripped even out of hymnals. And what's worse is that these verses that have been all but forgotten are oftentimes more rich than the popular verses of these songs that we all know. For instance, I grew up singing, O Come All Ye Faithful. You all probably know that song if you grew up in church. And I really believed, until a couple of years ago, that I knew that song by heart. But a couple of years ago, I was looking up the lyrics to Christmas carols, and I found a verse that nearly everybody rips right out of the song, and once again, it's even ripped out in a lot of hymnals. You know how the, the first verse of the song goes, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant? Well, this verse, I think it's verse 4, says, True God from true God, light from light eternal. Lo, he shuns not the virgin's womb. Son of the Father, begotten not created, O come, let us adore him. That is a deeper and more profound verse than I think anything in the rest of the song says. True God from true God. In other words, he's the eternal son from the father. This verse that so many have forgotten expresses a deeper Christology and a more awe-filled view of incarnation than any other part of the song. 
That forgotten verse of the psalm expresses the same idea, essentially, that verse 3 of our text does. The idea is that one who has come who is not an adopted son like David, and he's not a created son like Adam. Who is he? He is eternally in himself the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. That is the glory and the mystery of the incarnation. Emmanuel is God with us. The one who is eternally the image of his Father has come to be the image in flesh of his Father. He's taken on flesh and tabernacled among us. We have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But all of this doctrine about the incarnation of Christ is good news for us today. I don't want to just us to leave here with a lot of information. Many Christians go through their lives looking for a word from the Lord. That's true. We've all met them. People who wait quietly and practice certain kinds of meditation expecting to hear personally from God. And they're bogged down with this sense throughout the, their entire Christian life that they're not doing what they should be doing unless they are consistently hearing from God himself. They long for something to be mystified by. They want to stand in awe of their God. And these are good desires. But looking for things for these things is, is like the prophet Jeremiah said, Jeremiah said, it's forsaking the fountain of living waters for pots with holds that can hold no water. In Christ, we have something far better than visions, dreams, and words from the Lord through prophets. We have what all of those things pointed to. We have the radiance of God's glory and the yes and amen to all of his promises standing before us in the flesh, coming to us through the preaching of the gospel and inviting us into communion with himself. Christ, in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, invites you into his presence today. He comes for you. And he calls you into communion with himself. And you know what? What's the beautiful truth about this? About the fact that this Jesus himself is the final word from God? Is because that final word is enough to satisfy your soul for all of eternity. Heaven is centered on the person and the glory of Jesus Christ. The resurrection will be centered on the person in the glory of Jesus Christ. What God has said to you in Christ as his final word is enough to infinitely thrill your soul forever and never grow tired of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who your son is. We thank you that he's accomplished our redemption. And I pray that he would work in us through his spirit in these coming days to love him more, to savor his person and his work more and your glory that is revealed in him in the flesh more. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God has given us a good day in which Christ has been lifted up both this morning and this evening. And for that, we are indeed thankful. Let's take our Trinity hymn books and turn to 226. 226, Rejoice, 
The Lord is King. The Lord and King adore. 226 Trinity Hymn Book. Let's stand as we sing. wonderful king and we have a wonderful savior and we can rejoice in that reality thank you Micah for your labors on our behalf you're dismissed